guess we're going to fact check. <laughs> Times are rough before fact checking. <laughs> Though, you know, as we think through scripture there, uh, we are to fact check all the time, right? We're to be good Bereans searching through scripture there. Um, as even the Apostle Paul, we think of the great mighty Apostle Paul, you know, you still had the congregation, hey, is this indeed from Scripture here? So, actually, we're supposed to be good fact-checkers, right? Well, greetings in the name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ from the brethren of Bible Chapel of Delhi Hills. Grace and peace be to you all. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to come here and be with you all once again, um, this time in front at the pulpit. And... Uh, I will just sort of summarize what John Knox said as he would go to the pulpit often. And he was, you know, a 17th century uh, theologian there in Scotland. Am I right, 17th? Am I thinking 16th? Maybe 16th. Um, he would go, he was in conflict with the Queen of Scotland there. There was sort of this thing going on between Protestants and Catholics, all sorts of upheaval times of trial and tribulation in Scotland, and he would go before the pulpit and say, hey, you know, I don't go before you all, uh, you know, in trembling and fear and trembling in front of you. It's because I'm preaching before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God Almighty, our Savior. So I come before you as well as a humble servant who comes in fear and trembling, hopefully not because of you, but because we want to speak as ministers of the gospel, truth from the word of God. And we don't want to veer from that. There is, you know, great warnings in scripture for us uh, to, to be faithful and true to the word of God. Um, a little bit about myself as I fire this up. Um, pastor Doug mentioned that uh, a pastor at uh, Bible Chapel there in the west side of Cincinnati. We actually live in northern Kentucky. Uh, we moved from the Indiana side over to Kentucky a few years ago uh, for various different reasons. I was raised in Colorado along with my wife as well. So uh, coming, we moved east instead of west, you know, the, the old song, uh, Go West, Young Man. We went actually the opposite direction there and came out this direction. Uh, I was a active duty Air Force for 11 years, still in the reserves currently. Um, but I uh, came out this way for Southern Seminary, as Pastor Doug had mentioned. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, I'm in Cincinnati now, so... Uh, we don't see ourselves moving anytime soon from the air. We actually grown to love and appreciate the Midwest out here. And I don't even know what you call us Kentuckians, Southerners, Midwesterners. I don't know. They don't know for sure out there either. <laughs> well, today's message is going to be coming from the book of Psalm 103. If you would open up the Word of God to that. Psalm 103. And you'll see in the beginning there that this is a psalm of David. Starting in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth 
all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father, father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord. Ye, his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his host, ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Well, the Heavenly Father, Lord, what a great honor and privilege today to be able to meet together as your people, lifting up our voices in holy worship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is sovereign over everything. And Lord, we admit before you today, as we look upon this vast world, Lord, we see wars and rumors of wars, chaos, social upheaval, Lord, and Lord, sometimes this causes us to fear. So Lord, we just lift up this to you. We lay our petitions before you. Lord, and we acknowledge, Lord, in the midst of our trials and tribulations here on earth, that you are sovereign over all. That there is nothing that goes beyond your eyes. And you control absolutely everything. So Father, we just lift up this time of reading and teaching and preaching of your word, Lord. May it be faithful and true to the message that you have given to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. Well, I have a short confession to make this morning. And Pastor Doug here might say, Hey, Will, you need to leave right away. But um, I, I am just as much as a Baptist as, as a Reformed Baptist can get. 
You know, and I love the, the creeds, the confessions. I love the 1689 and the things that come along with that, the, the truths that we see as we read through that. But there is one thing that I like a little bit better in the Westminster than in the London Baptist Confession or in the Catechism itself. We look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and my children might even be able to respond as far as the Baptist Catechism comes. What is the first question? Who is the first and chiefest being? That being the answer? God, God is the first and chiefest being. You know, a simple little statement right there for our children to memorize their Alabaptist Catechism. But I actually like the Westminster Shorter Catechism here when it asks the first question, what is the chief end of man? The response, the answer is, the chief end of man is what? To glorify God. And that just doesn't stop right there either. To glorify God, but it's also to enjoy Him forever. As we reflect upon this statement, we need to ask ourselves, how are we glorifying God? How are we enjoying Him? Is this life on earth just drudgery and trials, tribulations, pain, suffering? Is this all we can sort of amount our life to here on earth? That doesn't sound very joyous to me. We are often bogged down by our daily lives. Our fears, our busyness, our struggles, our disappointments, the failures, the pain, the suffering, that we often lose sight of what we were created for in the first place, as we see in the Westminster Shorter Catechism here. In this day and the age where things are very uncertain, you know, for me as a reservist, you know, I, I sort of in, a little bit in, intrepid when I see a phone call from Washington, D.C. right now, right? I, when we think of the news and everything that's going on around, I'm like, I don't want that phone call, right? I don't want to see that come up. I'm like, because I sort of know what's going to come after that. Hey, Sergeant Glover, pack up your gear, right? It's time to go. You know, those things, these things we can worry as human beings. As we look at Psalm 103 here, though, I would like for us to reorient our sight and our focus on how we might glorify God and how we might actually enjoy Him here on this Lord's Day. This hymn of David, as we look at 103, is filled with praise, which celebrates God's goodness and love of the Lord and how the Lord shows His love to His people as well. This is the first of four psalms that reflects upon God's dealing with his people, his covenantal people here. From creation to exile, it goes through all this right here in Psalm 103. The structure is something known as chiastic or chiasm. Um, in fact, if you uh, have a handout at some point after service here, I have several of these for you to see the structure. This is really interesting stuff when you get into Bible college and stuff, and you're first introduced to some of these things. And somebody who grew up in a rural America, much like maybe some of you here as well, you know, uh, English wasn't even seemed like a first language for me when it came to grammar and syntax and all these things, right? You know, I was just barely making by back then, you know, I'm just a good old farm boy at heart right there. But when we look at the, even the structure, it's really incredible how how the author here, David, sort of wrote this, this structure of how the beginning sort of looks back at the end. It sort of reflects that. And the middle here also looks back near the tail end here. 
And it's fascinating how God uses even our language inside the Word of God. Matthew Henry stated this uh, about the structures of this psalm in particular. For he, David concludes, bless the Lord, O my soul, as he began. So we see that. If you look at 103, he begins how he ends. Blessing God and giving him glory must be the alpha and the omega of all our services. Psalm 103 opens with each singer addressing his own soul. Then it transitions to the Lord's faithfulness, and it returns once again and calls us to bless the Lord. This is the outline of my message. I like to give a you know, little lead in here to help us along. We see three sections here in Psalm 103. The first five verses are, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefit. The second portion is verses 6 through 19, the Lord's faithfulness. And then lastly, third section here, verses 20 through 22, that all creation, not just us, all creation, join in blessing the Lord. We will then conclude the message with some personal application uh, as well. So let us look at Psalm 103 here. What does it mean to bless the Lord as we open up and we look at these first three words? Bless the Lord. Surely the Lord doesn't need blessing. He, he's in need of nothing. He, he lacks nothing. He doesn't require it. It's not needed from us to actually bless the Lord. So what does this mean when it says bless the Lord? Well, first, David recognizes that the human heart is prone to ingratitude. Ingratitude. Now, my heart is just as prone to that as everyone else. Even more so, it seems like sometimes, right? Yeah. There's, there's periods and times in our own life where we're ungrateful, we're not happy, we're discontent. We're asking questions from the Lord, like, why me, God? So David recognizes this from the very onset. He's exhorting himself, he's sort of encouraging himself to praise the Lord. And he gives reasons why his heart should offer up such praises. Where is this blessing coming from? Is it a mere mental recognition, something in my head? I just have to think, you know, if I think it enough times, if I say it enough times, it becomes true. I don't think that's what it is here. Because David here offers up evidence. Evidence of the blessings of the Lord, the benefits as we see here in the King James Version that God gives us. There is concrete evidence in our own lives, just as Aaron David, of the benefits that we receive from him. David responds with gratitude offered up to God as well, which comes from the very fabric of his being. So this isn't just a mere mental rehearsal we're doing. It's something deep inside of his soul that he's talking about. And if that's, not every, if that's not enough of his soul, it says then everything else that is left within him, he blesses the holy triune God. Verse 2. David once again says he will bless the Lord. He reiterates this from his soul. And he recalls himself to remember the benefits God has done. Not only is David offering up praise, but his mind is recollecting the good things God has done. 
Um, I think I was reading through Spurgeon on this. And Spurgeon was under the um, belief that this was later on in David's life when he wrote this particular psalm here, 103. And he gave it, he listed out his evidences. But, um, you know, I think in light of, of sort of this heartfelt thing, we can sort of recognize this isn't a very young David. He's gone through, he's seen some things, some things right? He's noticed, he's lived, he's experienced life. He is preaching a sermon to his own heart here and mind and presents truths that he expects will cause him to praise the Most High. David knew without an attitude of praise, an attitude of gratitude, right? Um, that he would become hardened. This is what often happens to us when we are not lifting up the praise due to God, that we often slip and have a hard heart. Yeah. I am prone to that, like I've said, as many of us are. Therefore, he implores his own soul to bless the Lord. That's why he's reiterating it. Sometimes we need that. Not just once, not just twice, but a, a, a continual process of this attitude of gratitude he is offering up to the Lord. And only this, David's doing this in song. If we think of the Psalms, right? Where we sing out of the Trinity hymnal here. He's singing this psalm to the Lord. What joy that brings to us as well as we, we sing these truths. Uh, not only back up to God, but also to ourselves as well about who God is. Amen. If the first question is how to praise the Lord, then David's first answer to this praise happens when the heart gratefully remembers God's blessing in our salvation. Verses 3 through 5, the song has each worshiper continuing to address their soul by listing some of the personal benefits of God. It is important to remember here that the first benefit that is received is the forgiveness of sin. I think this is fantastic as we think through this, these benefits we've received. Bless the Lord who forgives all your... What's the word there? Iniquity. It is not only those who remember they are forgiven of their sins, it is only for those who remember they are forgiven of their sins who will properly offer up thanksgiving to the Lord. Amen. That's it. It is only when we realize the magnitude of our guilt and our trespasses and our sins against the Holy God where we can offer up this thanksgiving. We deserve a lot, a lot more as benefits and inheritors of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We deserve a whole lot more bad things, right? We deserve pain, suffering, death, eternal damnation. These are the things that we deserve. However, through Christ, we benefit so much more than what we could ever imagine or even think about repaying. Not only is one of the benefits forgiveness, but he also heals our diseases. Now, as I was reading through here as well, various different opinions, uh, whenever you get into scholars uh, talking about these things, they're always debating, you know, what is, you know what's, what's the Hebrew mean here? You know, how are we taking this? You know, there's always debates, endless debates. <laughs> 
However, you know, I, I'm a simple farm boy, le, boy, like I said. I like the plain and simple truth as we read through Scripture here. Well, one of the debates is, is what is this disease or what is this thing that God is healing? Is this a spiritual thing? Is this a physical thing that is being taught about here uh, through David? Well, I, mean, I think in context here, uh, I think it, it leans more towards the spiritual side here of God healing our diseases. Diseases sort of being parallel there with our iniquities at that point. But this isn't to say that he will never heal sicknesses and diseases. We see this metaphor throughout Scripture used in a spiritual life. Isaiah 6.10, uh, 53.5, Jeremiah 3.22, several other instances there. And since this is in parallel with forgives, the metaphorical use of iniquity uh, is likened to diseases which weaken and corrupt our soul and ultimately leads us to, to death. Since David is addressing the soul, we should think of this mainly as a spiritual healing linked to forgiveness of sins. These sentiments reflect David's experiences of God's forgiveness. We can look back at Psalm 51 there. These benefits go on to conclude God's constant care and provision. If we think of Psalm 51, what is that about? That he had been caught in adultery. And he is pouring out his heart before God there in Psalm 51 there. We think of this in light of Christ. Jesus' miracles also involve cleansing and healing. We think of uh, the healing of the, the lepers. They, you know, they were washed away. They became clean. This is a picture of what Christians experience in salvation. We see a, prog a progressive and powerful cleansing of our thoughts, our attitudes, and desires, and this should cause grateful praise. Some of these things, though, do linger. We're not going to get off into progressive sanctification, but there are instances. I have known people where, you know, just as soon as they are saved, radically, they don't have that desire for that addiction anymore. And sometimes... Others struggle through these things. And they continue to have to look towards Christ for, for uh, salvation through these instances that come to tempt them. Let's continue through other benefits here. Verse 4. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. For those who have received forgivenesses, and I will make this claim, the only ones who can receive these forgivenesses are those who have submitted and confessed in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is it. You cannot receive these benefits without that assurance through Christ. But for those who have received forgiveness and healing, their life has been saved from destruction. That is a yes and an amen right there. You know, we, we no longer have to fear the grave. Redemption tells us of deliverance from the misery which sin has cast, been cast out. I think of the story of John Newton. You know, the, the famous hymnist there wrote Amazing Grace. Um, some of you may know, some of you may not, that he was actually uh, a slave boat captain early in his life there. And he recounts uh, his coming to faith there on 
one of the slave ships, and they were undergoing a tremendous storm, so much so that you know, uh, they thought they may lose the battle against the storm, the waves crashing against the deck there. And he was down below uh, there at the pump well. Now, uh, I've been doing some YouTube stuff. I'm a history guy too. So uh, I was watching something on, on these big, mag magnificent boats, uh, the sail ships, and they were always constantly leaking, which I'm like, oh, really? That's interesting, right? They're always leaking. So there's always some people down at the bottom that would use this sort of like circle instrument there that would be part of the pump. They'd be pumping out the little bit of residue water coming through the cracks of the boards there. So you're always doing this. But in the midst of the storm, you get more men down there to pump even harder. Well, this is one of the instances where John Newton was at the bottom there using the pump there to keep the ship afloat. And in the pit, his mind laid hold of biblical truth, scripture itself, that his mother had taught him. And at that moment is when he cried out to God, Save me! Hey, I think that, that had a, a double intention there. Save you from what? From, from the sea? Yes, absolutely. But as he's recollecting the word of God here, save his soul as well. And he sort of goes back to this point in his life as instrumental in turning his life around. Deliverance for Christians can come in many different ways. Some is deliverance from addictions, others abuses, persecution, even sicknesses and diseases, a whole list that we could probably come up with here of deliverance from, but ultimately it's from the fear of grave and death. First, four also offers us loving kindness and mercy. We don't often think of being crowned, but this is what verse 4 says. Um, he crowneth thee with loving kindness. When we think of crowns, I, I think of, you know, a king or a queen, you know, putting on that royal crown right there. You know, and this is sort of the language David is using, putting on this crown. And how does God crown us? He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. These are the jewels upon the crown that we wear, that God loves us and He takes care of us. And He's not like this, this Father up above in heaven who is just waiting for us to make a mistake. You know, a mess up and, you know, sort of, sort of, and we'll get into this a little bit later that God, you know, doesn't want to chide. He no longer wants that. But he doesn't want that from us. He wants to give us these crowns, these jewels to show us loving kindness and tender mercies in our lives. Verse 5, who satisfies the soul. Um, verse 5 says this, Who satisfy thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. This is sort of the capstone of these benefits as we transition into the next section. With ingratitude comes great and deep dissatisfaction. A yearning for always something more. And that's sort of the consumer mentality we often have here in America now. We always want more. We always want something different. And that, that consumption mentality is, is never satisfied in us. Uh, we're always in a sense of discontentment. And this is sort of the, the, the nature, the way that, that many have made this system to be here in America, to make us discontent. And we fall for it. 
Maybe it's somebody who has, you know, a, a nicer car than what you do or a nicer house or, you know, maybe you want a different job or, or whatever it is. We, we fall into discontentment quite often. Uh, this is a thirst that can never be quenched. However, with this promise, we see that comes satisfaction of the soul. And I think back to John 4.14, the woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. This is, you know, the woman at the well was like, oh, wow, I want that water, right? I never have to be thirsty again? Not at all? That sounds fantastic. Give that to me. That's not what Christ was, was talking about. He was the spring of living water that he was offering up. This doesn't mean that we will never recede hardship through these times. And it doesn't mean in the midst of our trials and hardships uh, that we can have satisfaction. We can have satisfaction in the midst of our trials and sufferings. Uh, that is given through us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 5, and we are restored like youthful eagles. It's a plural, eagles. Uh, one of the most amazing, majestic things I've ever seen in the wild is a bald eagle. I don't know, I'm not from Indiana here. I don't know if you have bald eagles around here, but it's one of the most majestic. You know, not only is it our national bird, that's fantastic, I, and I'm thankful it's not a turkey. That would have been really odd. But uh, I remember we were there in Colorado, and at that point in my life, I'd seen maybe two or three in the wild. That was it, um, of a bald eagle. And I look over to my wife. I'm like, do you see that out in that field? And she's like, what is it? And there were seven bald eagles all surrounding this one car carcass and flying around. It was like, wow, that just, it just like made my day. I saw, you know, a beautiful bird right there just flying around. It's prey and seven of them. I saw more in that one day than I'd had in my own whole entire life. I mean, we often see these type of images inside the Bible here, you know, of majestic creatures like the eagle here. We are restored like youthful eagles. Second Corinthians 4.16 says this, Though our outer self is wasting away, and as I age, I can say, yes, I can, I can feel that a little bit more than I was, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago before. Uh, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. This is sort of like a weird paradox. Yeah. That our body is aging, growing, fail, falling apart, you know, uh, all sorts of issues. But our, our inner self, our spiritual self is being renewed. It's actually growing more youthful like the eagle who is soaring through the sky there. Amazing. The eagle is an emblem of strength, vitality, and youthful endurance. Isaiah 40, 31 says this, But they, wait upon, oh, uh, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up their what? Their wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. This promise is fulfilled in the life beyond death, where ultimately 
We will have a glorified body where that, that glorified body will, will reflect the reality of our spiritual body that has been renewed. This is the hope that David completes the chain of many benefits we see through verses 1 through 5 here in Psalm 103. We see a powerful role of gratitude in David's life. Spurring praise to God, forget not all his benefits. And David argues as he follows up with an impressive recounting of the blessings for which every Christian should be grateful for. Lord, what? He forgives. He heals. He redeems. He crowns us. He gives us satisfaction. And He offers renewal. If we want to live for the glory of God, then we will exercise our hearts with the, this kind of remembering that David shows us here. Let's continue on here. Verses 6 through 19. The Lord's faithfulness. This is a reminder here of uh, and puts our focus on two motivations to live in praise of God. Love for Him and awe for His greatness and majesty. And to be balanced in our spiritual life, we need both of these, to love Him and to fear Him. That is an interesting statement. We're to love and to fear. You know, uh, I am a son of a Pentecostal pastor. And uh, the last thing I ever wanted to do was get in trouble while we were in church, which, which happened quite often, in fact. <laughs> Me and my brother would get into it. And, you know, if I heard from behind the pulpit, my dad say, you know, we are going to have words after the sermon. I knew that was not good, right? I was in big trouble. I can remember one time where he actually stopped the service for me and my brother. Now, that was even worse. <laughs> Anyways. This truth of that we must fear. I feared my father from those words, but I also loved and respected the man dearly. The Lord's dealing, 6 through 14. In these verses, David develops his case for God's uh, love. First, he proves God's love, and then he displays God's love. And then he measures God's love, and finally, he illustrates God's love. Verses 6 through 7, here's the Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. Righteousness and justice are the blessings of protection for those who might exploit or harm the oppressed. And this refers to the oppressed people in general, but especially straight stresses God's care for his own people. We tie this into the next several verses of why I make that claim. This isn't just for everyone. This is for God's covenantal people, these promises. Verse 7 it stresses God's care for Israel. It becomes a little more clear here as we continue on. He made his way known unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. There you have it, his covenantal people, to his prophet Moses there. We remember that David was writing 10 centuries before Christ, and sometimes you'll hear me vacillate using Christ in here and you know, ultimately, we see that, that the promises are fulfilled in Christ here. And I hope we understand that for those who are of faith here. Um, the question isn't, hey, was David actually thinking of Christ? He, he was. He just didn't know the name. He didn't know who you know, Jesus Christ was. But he, he did believe he was a man of faith, just like we are. He just saw it before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we get to see a little bit better 
a little bit, you know, more focused lenses here of who Christ is, who this ultimate Savior was. He was writing, you know, well before Christ. But he is also recollecting the exodus here, too, of Israel. Uh, as he's talking about Moses and the children of Israel here. And how God had saved his people. These were sure proofs of God's amazing love to his people. So we've first seen those first five verses. He's talking about him as an individual. Here we start to see him use different language, different pronouns. He's moving from me, myself, to we, his people. Psalm 103, 6-7, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to his people Israel here. In Exodus, God provided justice for his people by breaking the bonds. So they move on. They, they journey from Egypt to the promised land. God also provided a way of righteousness for his people during this time period. How did he do it? He set up a sacrificial system. This is a blood sacrifice. This was a type and shadow that points ultimately forward to Christ's ultimate death on the cross. Psalm 103, verse 8, is the key to this section. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. As Paul would later be prone to do, David draws together various words to lift our hearts in praise. These are the glories of God's love from which our whole salvation flows. From mercy, from mercy we gain pardon. From grace we gain favor. From long-suffering we gain patience. And from steadfast love we receive God's bountiful kindness. If only, God's, or if only David's heart can realize the great compassion and love of God to see how beautiful salvation and loving kindness that flows from God himself. Verses 9 through 10 goes on to tell us that God's love is put on its greatest display in how we react to our sin. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. How many people use the word chide still today? I haven't heard that. I, I see some young people back here like, chide, what is that, you know? What is chiding? What is being chiding? It's been a long time since I've used that word, right? It's been a while. So what does this mean, that uh, he will not always chide? This is sort of a response to God's love for us, seen in the response of our sin. He's, he, will not, he will neither keep his anger forever. He is not uh, wanting to have us be corrected or underneath his condemnation or be outside of his will, or outside of his law there. He wants to urge us into righteousness, and dissuade us from unrighteousness, from sinful habits, desires, and the lusts of the flesh. But, like we mentioned before, he doesn't berate us. He doesn't hit us over with a club. Like, maybe some of us were raised that way, where a, a parent, parental figure was like, just continually... You know, just berating us over the little mistakes that we've done. Sometimes these things can distort how we view God in some people's lives there. If we had, you know, some very overbearing, very harsh parents. This isn't the God we serve that we see here, though. 
if we are in Christ. It isn't some God above, you know, who's just waiting for us to mess up. That way they can, you know, sort of say, hey, look how great I am and look how terrible you are. Verses 11 through 13 here. For as heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father, father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. This shows. Um, he makes comparisons here of the kindness he has towards his people. I love this section right here. Whenever I mess up, when I fall into sin, and, you know, and a lot of times we can beat ourselves up over these, these things, which we, there should be some sort of reflection on that. But when I look at Scripture such as this, and I want to you know, just continually beat myself up, I look at this and I ask for forgiveness. And I turn from my sin there. And I remember that you know, God's remembrance of this is as far away as east is from the west. It's, it's insurmountable. He, he, he forgives and in some ways, or how we can think of it in human terms, he forgets our sins. You know, he doesn't hold that against us. It is immeasurable. The heights of the heaven above the earth is the distance. We see these, this language here very re, uh, deep and rich. Distance from east to west. It is as a tender as a father's compassion or the, for the frailness of their own child. You know, when, if you are a parent out there and you see a, a sick child or, or, or a hurting child, you know, it should be our first instinct, you know, of compassion upon that child, no matter, irregardless of the situation, yeah. even a friend, right? It doesn't matter if they messed up. Mm -hmm. our, our, our children will mess up. We messed up, right? As, as we're humans, we're prone to that. But our, our first instinct should be like God the Father here. should be compassion for them. God knows our very makeup. He knows our innermost being. And verse 14 here says, For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. He understands these things. He created us. And he knows that the result of the fall... A sin came into this world, and it distorted the original creation of how he designed humanity to be. We fell in Adam. And ever since then, that's this whole picture of how God had a plan to make it right. And ultimately, he was focused on Christ there on the cross. That's how he made it right. But we, ever since, have been frail. We, we have... Uh, finite to us. God is infinite. We are finite. This reminds us that we are ultimately humans in need of a Savior. Verses 15 through 19, the man of God. This brings the, the song or the psalm to a crescendo. This is sort of like the point in any musical composition. You know, we're just waiting for, you know. If anybody's listened to some uh, like modern classical music, you'll notice that it, um, it doesn't sound the same as like the old school type of classical music there. There's, there's some differences in there, especially if you get into the, the, the modern composers out there. Um, 
it misses some important elements. They're experimenting. Or we can even see this in art as well. Um, uh, we think of modern art versus, you know, maybe medieval art. And I, I teach medieval history for, for a, a group of homeschoolers there. And I take them through the Renaissance there and some of the art. And, like, we look at the beauty of the Sistine Chapel and things like that. And you're like, I mean, this is magnificent. And then you look at some modern art and you're like, my three-year-old child could have put that together. And they sold that for a million bucks, right? This is the crescendo. This is something we are anticipating, we're awaiting for. Just like a good piece of music, a good piece of art as we enjoy these things. Verse 15 through 16 says this, As for man, his days are as grass, as flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. David shows that praise for men is misplaced. We are like grass. Um, one thing that we notice as we moved out to this area of the world is this a lot more green than where we were in Colorado. There's definitely con contrast between spring, summer, fall, and the color of grass. And you may think that out here, but you go out west, you definitely see this contrast being in the high plains deserts. You know, it's, it's not until spring when, when some of the snow starts to melt and the rains come in like, oh, well, our dead grass that looked yellow and brownish, it now looks green. We see this contrast here. And you see that changing of seasons in the grass. However, um, I think this is sort of the idea that we think of or I think of here of the grass, that, you know, it's finite. It, there's, there's this life and death regenerative process here. The flowers of the field, they continue to cycle through. There's, there's a process there. It's very short-lived, especially if you go up into, like, the Rocky Mountains there. The, the flowers are, are here and then gone. For the wind passeth over it. It is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. He uses grass, flowers, David here, and wind illustrates uh, we are finite. To continue on that theme there. In comparison, God is infinite. His love has no beginning and end. God's love for his people, therefore, uh, was there before we were even created, which is an amazing thought to think of. Verse 17, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. The condition of God's steadfast love is those who fear him, those who are in Christ. That is the condition of his steadfast love. He makes no such promise to everyone else. I know that might be popular in Christian language and circles out there. You know, God loves everyone. That's not the case as we look at Scripture here. It only is extended to those who fear him. And this is amazing here too. This promise is extended to the generations. Not just to ourselves, but to our children and our children's children here. Verse 18. To such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The psalmist here clarifies that those who particularly receive steadfast love are those who fear him and remember this commandment. These are God's covenantal people. The ones he chose from the foundation of the world. Not everyone receives these benefits. Verse 19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in all heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. 
This links uh, some of the defined kingship that we see in some of the other psalms here, I believe 93 through 100. The Lord's throne and kingdom refer to his universal rule over all creation. The marvel of God being God's people is that the one whose kingdom rules over all offers the privileges of gratefully embracing his rule. Despite what our eschatological, our end times view is, so we look out to the world today, or whether we shouldn't be a Christian nation or not, some of the, some of the pop culture and Christianity debates going on, one thing remains true. God's kingdom rule is forever and it's over everything. Stephen Charnock said this, it is fixed, this is talking about his rule and his kingdom, not tottering, it is, not, um, it is an unmovable dominion. All the struggling of men and devils cannot overturn it, not so much as to shake it. His dominion as himself abides forever. And his counsel, so his authority shall stand, and he will do as he pleases. Do you really believe this in the midst of the chaos that we seem to live in right now? Do you believe God frets or wrings his hands like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. You know, I think sometimes we think of God in this way. Like, does God really know what's going on in this? I and mean, this seems pretty messed up, you know? It's not. He's, he's in control of it all. After listing all these benefits, the psalmist returns to the urging various creatures to the bless the Lord, echoing verses 1 and 2 as we continue on here. In verses 20 through 22. Let me read the last three verses here. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord and all ye his host, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103 concludes with this observation. David shows that the heart of praise uh, of God's people seeks uh, also companions into worship. We see the angels added in here at the end. This address goes beyond the in individual soul, but the angels, the host, the ministers here. It emphasizes that we are ready to in their obedience to the Lord's will. Not only are we in obedience, but the angels are in obedience to praising, blessing the Lord here. Christ also represents this, uh, this model of obedience in his humanity. I make that distinction there, in his humanity. In Matthew 6.10, as he teaches the disciples to pray, Thy will be done. And it finally wraps up here, verse 22, Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So, a few applications as we wrap up today. When we focus on our own self, uh, we slip into a life of joylessness and ungratefulness when that focus is here. I believe it was even Sharnock, it might have been uh, McCain, Machine, um, who stated, you know, for every time I look at myself, I need to take ten looks at Christ. Um, I, I always think of that statement right there, you know, when I try to internalize really, you know, you know, woe is me type of mentality. You know, I need to actually look back to Christ there more so. So we can, we can sort of fall into this ungrateful attitude as we look at ourselves. 
the psalmist here reminds us to, to reorient our hearts and our minds on things above. Colossians 3.2 says this, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Can you say that today? Is your, your affections properly oriented onto things above? Or are you so worried and focused on things here on this earth that you've, you forgot the most important thing? If you lack joy, you find yourself constantly in a bad mood, you are frequently ungrateful, then turn your gaze back to Christ. A second application for believers. We need to meditate on these verses and pray uh, for God to fill our hearts with gratitude and praise despite our circumstances and our feelings. We live in an age of entitlement where we expect certain things. And if we don't get those expectations met, then we're unhappy. Uh, one of our family hymns that I, I think about uh, often is uh, Count Your Blessings. I don't know if you've seen that here or uh, may have heard it. It's an older hymn. And in our family tradition, we've sang it from everything from births to deaths to everything in between. Weddings. It was sung on our wedding as well, if I remember right. Um, but it wasn't something we just did, you know, hey, let's get together as a family and talk about the things we're, we're thankful for one time a year. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. That's a good thing for us to do. But this should be something we're doing, you know, constantly, all the time. What are we counting our blessings? What are these benefits that God has given to us? For the unbeliever, so I gave some of these things to reflect upon here for the believer. For the unbeliever, you have no confidence in knowing God's good benefits. You should not expect these things to happen. It is only merely by the grace of God that anything good has happened in your life in the first place. For that person who has no faith in Christ, I encourage you today to flee to Him, to Christ, the Son of God, the one who came into this earth, fully God, fully man, so that he would go ultimately to the cross and die and atone for our sins. It just doesn't stop right there. That's a great story. But there's also more to it. You know, he didn't just atone sins for, for uh, a universal approach that everyone now is saved and will go to heaven. That's not the case. We have to have our faith in Christ. We have to, uh, there needs to be a semblance of, uh, out of that fruition of salvation from Christ. There has to be repentance of those sins. We have to bear fruits. These things should be self-evident in Christians. We need to turn to Him because of who He is, not because of the things He does for us. That's another thing I want to make uh, known. Sometimes, you know, uh, we, we think of the gifts rather than the giver. We need to turn to the giver more so than the gifts that he gives us. He's the one who sustains the universe by the power of his word. And he's the one who suffered and died on the cross to atone for our sins and our salvation. To forgive us of our unrighteousness for those who confess and believe. Secondly, for unbelievers, maybe you're waiting because of guilt and unworthiness to turn to God. 
1 John 3.20 says this, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So don't wait for the perfect moment. Don't wait, you know, hey, I got my act together. Now I can come to Christ. No, go to Him today. Do not continue to carry such a heavy burden and load. It's not for you to carry. So come to Christ despite your fears, your anxiety, your doubts, your unworthiness, and your guilt. In conclusion, Psalm 103 equips worshipers to celebrate what the Lord has done and what He has revealed through His character of love and enduring commitment to His people. It also reinforces the instance that it is the faithful, those who fear Him, who receive these benefits and of His benevolence can pass on, not only through us, but also to our descendants. So it is a great thing when we as, as adults can sort of show our children the faith. So let us be people who bless the Lord. Amen? Amen. Want me to close in prayer? Yes, please. Right. Well, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. Lord, we admit to You that we are sinners and we often fall prey and prone to unbelief. Lord, help us to believe these words. Especially if we are going through serious times of, of struggle and doubt, and trials and tribulations, things um, that you only know in a person's heart. Lord, help us to be these, these people, as David said, that will bless your name, who will be grateful for your many benefits. And Lord, that you have shown evidence to us You've shown evidence through your Son. You've shown evidence through your Word. You've shown evidence, Lord, in our own lives, the many times, providentially, that you have intervened. Now, Father, I hope that this message for the believer, Lord, will bring comfort and peace to our lives and reorient our thoughts to you. And Lord, not only just our thoughts, Lord, but we do ask that you will increase our actions as a response, Lord. This is just not a mere mental exercise, but it will cause us uh, to be the light to this lost and dying world. And Father, we just ask a blessing upon your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.